Or if you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm your host, Aiden, and we're here for another exciting episode of The Push-Pull Factor, the podcast where we hear real stories from real people. Last time I spoke with you all, I dropped my episode on an innocent Wednesday morning that, you know, later comes to be known as the day that the Capitol building gets stormed by some raggedy racists. So, you know, what a time to drop an episode, but regardless... That happened. It's a part of our country's history. It was wild, but now onwards to bigger and better things. And if that isn't a push factor, then I don't know what is. But in other news, because I know you guys want to get to more fun, bubbly content, I recently discovered the app Clubhouse, which I got started off in, you know, little VC tech insider celebrity bubbles. But that was back in the summer, I think into the fall and really winter, like December, really recently. You know, starting to pop. Like I heard about it all over Twitter, but you know. I didn't really care to get an invite there. An opportunity for an invite came along, and I was like, yeah, maybe I do want to check it out. And I've been having a blast, like, honestly. For those of you who don't know, it's like a virtual hallway, almost, kind of deal. Like, you see a bunch of different rooms. They're almost like video list Zoom or Google Hangouts just with a bunch of people. You see their icon. Like, you see the topic that's being discussed, the number of speakers, if you have any mutual followers. Each conversation usually has a moderator who you know, discusses things, they're running the conversation, they're directing. But you can listen in, you can raise your hand, request to speak, get to the stage, do a little bit of both. But I don't know what I expected, but I've come across a few different like podcasting rooms, just a few different rooms about different topics, about life, grief, honestly some celebrity gossip, that's to me. But honestly, I've had some dope conversations and there's a lot of value in those little small rooms. Like, like those rooms are like 10 to 15 people. I've had such amazing conversations, I've gotten to meet people who have had such great platforms who've built such amazing careers for themselves. So see how long this app stays in the popular consciousness. Cause I'm wondering, is it going to be a trend? Is it going to be something to stay? We'll see. Cause I don't know. I feel like it's going to a lot of benefit from the pandemic. Cause this is how it's, you know, it's a little more social. So I think it's the most social like platform that I've had since the pandemic has started. Like I've actually had a platform to meet and engage with others which i feel like i don't know so many apps try to do that and conquer that and fill that niche and they're actually doing it so at least for now you know but again it's really cool but i know that makes me sound like i just sit on social media all day but i do stuff besides that and podcasting i have a job i do squats sometimes i go to trader joe's i live a regular life but onwards to migration education this is the part of the show where i discuss the field of migration and a little bit on the country that we're speaking about today and today, we're talking about Korea. South, not North. But I think I didn't have to disclose that, but you know. North, but North Korea gets mentioned in the podcast, actually. And there's a cool story related to that. So, stay tuned. But today, our episode is a trip to South Korea. And unfortunately, I have not been there. But I really want to, because they seem like they have great street food. Great street food and amazing sights. But honestly, if you listen to enough of these episodes, you probably know that I want to travel to pretty much every country that would have me. So, but more on Korea and migration. Since this episode features a journey from Korea to the United States, I'm actually going to take us back to the origin of that migration route. So, the first people from Korea to come to the United States was back in the early 1900s. So they arrived in Hawaii to work on their sugar plantation. And actually, on that first ship, there were 102 of them, and that was in 1903. And two years later, in 1905, the numbers were over 7,000. So I think that just shows the opportunity that was provided on these sugar plantations. And maybe shows that there was a bit of a push out of Korea because 7,000 people had left over such quick time for an overt opportunity. 
But unlike some other groups from other countries that had migrated to work on the sugar plantations, those who came from Korea tended to be from more coastal towns and had worked from more urban areas rather than being farmers from rural areas. So this gave them an edge up in, you know, westernization and really assimilating with the Western culture. Additionally, on top of this, a lot of the population who came from Korea had actually converted to Christianity while home. So that was another kind of lever that they had to pull to sort of connect with the people of the United States. Like many countries, there were several waves of migration from Korea, which really had to do with the political situation at the time. So the country was in decline in the early 1900s, and that's when the first group had kind of arrived like we previously went through. And also within this wave, and as they had settled down, this included picture rides, which was a concept where immigrant workers, mainly of Korean descent, but also consisting of immigrants from Japan and Okinawa, where they would select their brides from their home country just via a matchmaker, and they would just solely communicate via photographs and recommendations from their family. And it wasn't just men who motivated this kind of picture bride exchange. A lot of the plantation owners had a stake in it too, because they felt like married men were more likely to settle down and stay in the area and potentially work on their plantation a little bit longer. Additionally, they hoped that the wives would be a little bit of a morale booster because apparently some of these workers had problems with gambling and staying out a little too long at the local opium den. So who knows what the wife could do with that? However, this and most immigration from the Eastern Hemisphere was halted in 1924 with the U.S. Immigration Act of 1924. This put a stop to migration and really was a deliberate move to quote-unquote protect American homogeneity. While it was more so targeted towards Eastern Europeans, it also cut off many Asian countries from immigration to the United States. In fact, the only country that was allowed was the Philippines since it was a U.S. colony at the time. From here, the political situation in Korea continued to develop, and this is where they began to establish relationships with other superpowers, and, you know, factions began to form, and that's how the divide between South and North Korea began to begin, and that led to the start of the Korean War, which was a conflict that created yet another push factor for Korean residents, and was the driver for a lot of modern migration to the United States. In fact, that ties a little bit into the story that we have today with Tony Lee, my guest, who, again, like I said, I had met on Clubhouse, and I was enamored with how open and eager he was to share his story, how he embraces his identity, and just how, again, open and hilarious he is. He's very candid, very informative. He has quite a story and journey. It was a really fun interview. We really get into it. So without further ado... Here with me, I have Tony Lee, born in South Korea, currently living here in the United States and working as a director of Paid Social. How are you doing, Tony? I'm doing well, Ian, and how are you, Ben? I'm doing good. I'm enjoying it. And it's like a small world. I also work in Paid Social at the moment, so... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's a tough world, but I think it's, it's pretty fun. Yes, sir. It's a fun fact on the viewers. We actually met in a clubhouse room, which is like, it's a really cool new app. I feel like I just discovered it this past weekend and I haven't been able to put it down. It's just, it's kind of addicting, but I think it was built that way. Or maybe it's just the pandemic. I don't know. No, it's definitely addictive. Uh, the um, the last, or two days ago, I stayed up till 4.30 a.m. Um, just straight up having good conversations with random people I just met through clubhouse. So yeah, it is very addictive. You know, like you see one room you're into and you poke around, you're in there for like an hour, an hour and a half, then boom, you come out, there's another room, and then <laughs> like time just slips away. That's how it is. So let's start with where in the world were you born, and then where do you currently live? Yeah, so I was born in Seoul, South Korea. 
Um, and then I moved to the United States when I was in the second grade, uh, second grade in Korea, which turned out to be um, when I arrived third grade in America. And then um, in America, it was Laguna Hills, California, which is a city in South Orange County, which is also about an hour south of Los Angeles to give everybody context. Um, and then, yeah, um, the original plan was for me to finish elementary school in the United States so I can learn a little bit of English, understand a little bit of culture, and then go back to Korea. And then my parents made the decision to um, educate me fully in the United States, and I've been here ever since. All right. So still, like, young enough that pretty much, like, the United States is what you knew, but I'm sure you still have some memories back home in Seoul, right? Yeah, absolutely. I try to go back to Korea at least uh, once a year. All my relatives are in Korea. I'm fully fluent. Um, chat with them through social media and text messaging apps all the time. So I'm very close uh, with my family roots and kind of the Korean culture. Um, and yeah, I just happen to have now lived in America longer than I've lived in Korea. But um, enough memories to remember what Korea is and keep in touch with everybody. All right, so pretty like bicultural. It's like you're still connected with both sides. Yeah, uh, I I feel like I am, but I think um you know to a degree um some some Koreans in Korea would feel that I'm a little bit more Americanized. There's a term that um, Koreans use which is called kyopo, which basically, for lack of better words, means outsider, and it it has a negative connotation to a degree. But you know it, my Korean is good, but you can tell that there was an outside influence, right? My uh, tone and um, everything is, it sounds Korean, it feels Korean, it has the right flow, but there's a little bit of a accent, this is not the right word, but like when you have different nuances in the grammar and kind of stuff. So, you know, um, some Koreans don't fully see me as Korean, which is kind of common in the Korean culture. Um, and then, you know, in America, I've always had a hard time because I grew up in Laguna Hills, which is a predominantly white area. And I didn't see anybody that looked like me realistically until like junior high. So, um, you know, um, when the Asian community looked at me, they were like, oh, he was too white. So, you know, um, in full transparency, I've always struggled being an Asian American. Um, I'm very proud of being Korean. I'm very proud of being American. I'm very proud of um, who I am or what my family decided to sacrifice for me. But, you know, an identity crisis is somewhat I think common um, to uh, what I would say is uh, um, a lot of Asians who grew up in a white area and um, try to assimilate with Asians who grew up in an Asian area and then kind of met together. And then there were some, you know, internal kind of like back and forth a little bit. So, you know, I don't, I don't it's something that happened um, when I was younger. Um, I'm hyper aware of it, but it has defined, I think, a lot of the things I'm doing. But um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to get that context to you and the listeners. That definitely makes sense. And one, it's definitely very tough to not have like that acceptance from like, it's supposed to be like your group and your people. And I definitely you know, see a lot of comparisons with like the black community with people who are raised in predominantly black environments and like, it's not just one collective monolith group, as some may think. Yeah, totally. So I guess going off of that, was it primarily like you learning English and like your education while your family came to the US? Or did your parents have any other ties to the United States? Uh, well, my dad um, had a business and he was traveling to the United States um, every two weeks and then going back to Korea for two weeks. And so his business kind of brought him to the United States. But what I would say is the more focus was 
um, on me. It was to get me educated. So um, they wanted to make sure that I learned English because, um, you know, one of the things that my dad has said in business was that because he only grew up in Korea and um, got education only in Korea, he didn't naturally know how to think big in culturally and globally. Um, and he wanted to make sure that when he had a son, he wanted to give that son the best education possible. Because you have to realize when my parents' generation um, was growing, it was right during the Korean War, right? That's when the North Korea and South Korean had the war. My parents, uh, my grandma, um, uh, rest in peace, she she decided to move our family from North Korea to South Korea when everything was happening. And they were relatively decent and you could almost consider well off in North Korea. But she knew the ideals and everything is just not going to be right. So my dad was a toddler at the time. She put um, him on his back, took all of our family's belongings, everybody together and crossed the border. So not only did that happen and then they came and they had nothing to their name, but Korea was relatively speaking the poorest country in the world right after that war, South Korea. And so my dad grew up in a time where the it, it, it was a third world country for him. And the only way that was um, an out for the family was education and being a son um that the only son um in the in, in the family tree oh it's actually not sorry he's not the only son because it, uh, my um my uncle came later but as the elder son in the korean family you have the responsibility of carrying on the family tradition and so he worked um he worked hard he got scholarships everywhere studied hard and made it that way um and then be able to get him opportunity and when he got into business world, he realized something and that like his education and the knowledge that he had from the um, the small world that he was in, he wasn't able to think enough big on a globally when he was talking with other leaders from different countries. So when he had a son, he wanted to make sure I had the best education, all the books I could read that he never could read, right? He had to grow up um, stealing books from other, uh, not stealing, borrowing books from other people because there was nothing to read, right? um because he already read the school books and there was no casual reading and that was how he was learning um he wanted to make sure i had an english education to understand different um global perspective um one of the lessons early that he gave that is still um has a very profound impact on me even though i didn't really understand then is my job is not to um, understand the culture is to respect the culture so he gave me a lot of viewerships on what it was to be global understand there is an entire world out there and being um, at America to learn English at a young age was a, a part of his goal for not only me, but the family. Yeah, I think it's a very important lesson to instill. And I think it's very, one, impressive that you are bilingual. And I think it's important to pick that up as a younger person. Cause I think it's a lot easier as a kid. Oh, 100%. So a story, a quick story on that. Um, there, I had flashcards and the flashcards um, had one side in Korean, for example, um, I would read it and it says, which basically means um, I want to go to the bathroom. And the other side had it in English, I want to go to the bathroom. So imagine uh, cards like that that says like, um, I need to rest, I need to go to the doctor, um, and I need to call my parents and things like that, right? So for the first three months or so, I was dependent on those cards and giving it to the teacher to communicate. And then uh, when you were young, understanding languages and context is is actually a, apparently super um, easier than when you're older. And so 
within six months, I didn't need those cards anymore, but that's how I started. So quick. Yeah. Um, I'm, you, you know, it didn't even seem that quick to me. Um, it was just, um, eventually one day I went from, you know, potentially being an awkward kid who can't talk um, in front of teachers to somebody who's talking with teachers and hanging out with friends at recess. So, um, yeah, um, I'm, I, it, it was crazy to know, and it wasn't very conscious. It's not like I was learning English. I was just at school, and then one day just knew how to speak yeah. a language. Yeah, it was just immersion. You're just like six running around. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're bilingual. Yes, sir. So off of that, like, was like, education particularly stressful for you, knowing that your parents stressed it so much and it was so important to them? Like, did they try to dictate your major? Did you feel any like anxiety with grades growing up? You know, it's an interesting question because how I approached education then was that um, I, I had somewhat of a traumatic experience. So uh, in seventh grade, um, the first semester or first trimester, I got a 3.83, which basically means um, five A's and one B. The next semester, uh, and then when I came home, my dad basically said that, okay, B is not acceptable. What are you going to do to make that into an A? And I, and you know, um, relatively speaking, I was on the honor roll and I felt really proud, but he didn't see any proudness. He said, why are there eight minuses? Why isn't that an A plus? So I grew up under that. And then my third semester, right before summer, I got a 4.0. And when I thought he would be very happy that I finally did it, um, he kind of said that I don't see enough A pluses on the um, card. So I think subconsciously what ended up happening was I kind of gave up on academic studies a little bit. There was almost no incentive for me to do it because the person that I loved and respected the most saw this and only saw incomplete failures. And I didn't process it that way, but I must have subconsciously because, you know, I never really gave a lot of weight into academia um, throughout high school. It was just me going to class, me making decent grades because, um, you know, I had decent work ethic and understood, but by no means was I top 10 in my class or had aspirations to go to really big schools or anything like that. Um, I think, I think that moment um, had a lot of trickle down effects. However, it's not all bad. Um, I didn't end up going to college um, and graduate, or I went, I didn't end up going to college as soon as I graduated high school. Um, I went a little bit later uh, after I went to community colleges. I had a really long gap year, if you want to call call it that. But, you know, um, I basically didn't, I wasn't open to finding my passion or thinking about how school could help me in my career. Um, I really didn't have an incentive. And then, you know, in community college, uh, one day I took a, um, I, I joined a school newspaper and I had no journalistic background. I thought I hated writing and reading. Um, but I found my passion, and then all of a sudden, um, I started realizing, oh, if I find something that I like doing and I um, really love it, I have a whole different set of me that never existed. And I studied everything. I started reading journalism. Uh, well, reading journalism sounds weird, but reading newspapers and reading journalists that I care about. I started studying the art of crafting a lead, and um, I, under, I, I was studying journalism and writing and storytelling and it really inspired me so it's, it's funny that i think that moment um that my parents did to you know um to really get me to study more and motivate kind of went the other way but when i found my path a lot of the things that they did to prepare me in elementary school and the ideals have actually made me into a different person and now that i'm in the professional world um the amount of studying that i do outside of work and the trends and everything that got is going on and that makes me a really good uh, marketer and an entrepreneur um 
has kind of come in full spades, but uh, I guess that's a long way of saying that I have a very complex history with academia, um, but um, I have to both slap my parents' hand and also give them a hug because a lot of um, what they've taught has done good, good and bad for both. Yeah, it's definitely complex. One, one, like, grades can be so stressful on behalf of your parents, and again, like, when you don't have to go down that traditional path or you feel like you're not not on par with what you should be doing but it seems like your life came full circle and you found your spark and you know you're living your passion you're doing your thing which is pretty impressive i appreciate that that means a lot i know you mentioned growing up in this very homogenous area i guess one how was that and two did it create a desire to move to a different city in the u.s really try to get you know a more diverse experience of the united states Oh, that's a really good question. I don't, I never really grew up knowing I was Asian, if that makes sense, right? I grew up as just like people were friends. Um, my parents were like this, but I didn't have a comparison that I was different, if that makes sense. I've always been around a very um, white um, neighborhood. People who played in recess were the same thing. I didn't think that I was different. I was just a kid living life, right? So to a degree, I think it's overused when you're an adult. But when I was a kid, man, I really didn't see a color. Um, it was it was my friends. It was that right. What ended up happening and how I started seeing, I guess, difference and acceptance was it's a little bit of a different um, kind of challenge when somebody that looks like you and that someone that has parents that look like you um, all of a sudden doesn't want to be your friend or something like that. Right. Um, it, it's different. It changes your mind a little bit. And then when I started seeing clicks in high school and then realizing, you know, everybody has a different hanging out area, right? But then one area um, had predominant people that looked like me and one area didn't. And my friends from elementary school and junior high were one area that was different than the people that I look, right? Then I started seeing that. But then when I really experienced it was when I was basically trying to assimilate and, um, be with um, that area and a Asians that um, look like me, they were like, oh, you grew up in a white area. Oh, you're not Asian enough. And there was all these little things that were happening. And, you know, that's when I started realizing color and seeing color. Um, it was definitely not, um, uh, you, if you would have asked me as a kid that I grew up in a white area, I wouldn't have any idea or context what that meant. But now I do. Um, but back then, I had no idea. Yeah, I feel like sometimes it takes just leaving your environment and your bubbles to see, like, what the rest of the world is like just to have even a frame of comparison. Because if you've never left your town, sometimes you just you don't know what's out there. No, that's really a key point. My dad made sure when I graduated in sixth grade, he took me on a cruise and to um, Rome and Athens. And it's because I talked about so much in my history class, what I learned about it. And he wanted to show me the different cultures, right? Um, and then he, you know, like I said, one of the most important lessons he gave me as a kid, as a very like young kid, like I'm talking like, uh, I remember this in like kindergarten and like first grade, my job is not to... Um, understand the culture but respect it so i've always had this bigger mindset of what the world is like and how people interact and um, what different bubbles even within america are and that happened a little bit more in my college college years and understanding that but um yeah i uh, i really respect my dad for giving me an ideal that um you know for lack of better words i think is made me not see um racism as much and respect cultures and um you, you know, I think it really, I think, impacted how I make friends and what my values are and, um, you know, my job as a, a market professional. I think that was a very, very uh, profound ideal that he put um, for his son.
sort of speaking more on like the comparisons between Korean culture and American culture. Like you mentioned being Americanized and then like, getting some comments when you travel there. Like I guess what are some of the specifics? There's just mannerisms, how you dress. Like aside from your accent, is it, are there like other aspects of your Americanism that stand out? Or like if you were quiet, could you just be like, I, I, I was born here. I, I've lived here my whole life. Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of it too is that I grew up on the hip hop culture. And uh, Korea, until recently, really didn't um, have that as kind of, um, I guess, popular. So back then when, like, there was, um, you know, maybe a rapper on the top 100s, right? Like a Billboard 100 equivalent. Um, I was here dressed up fully in baggy jeans and jerseys and things like that. So even just straight up from a looking perspective, I was different, right? But even on top of that, like, you know, um, there comes a... I guess what's the best way to put it like there's a swag that comes with your culture and who you surround with and there's mannerisms and things like that that are so micro and not um, consciously done that's different so i think people picked up on that and also in korean culture um in, in korean american asian american culture as well there is a, a little bit of a um, somebody wants to check your resume um all the time and also have perceptions based around that and have societal values and norms around that so i think in korean cultures one of the things that you um see happen a lot and i'm not perfectly to be perfectly frank i'm not sure how true it is in other asian cultures though i've heard it's fairly true is that they ask you about like oh who, what do your parents do where'd you go to school what do you um like what do you do for a living? Those are like straightforward questions that a lot of Asians ask that, you know, I, I really rarely see in any other communities. But what you say, they have a perception base around that and go off a lot of stereotypes and judge you accordingly. So that happens a lot. And that's, I think, the, the thing that I um, noticed the most in that um, it's not just like the visual outlook, but the first things they want to know about someone is um see what kind of stereotype bucket you fall into and that unfortunately decides how they want to interact with you a little bit so um i think there's a little bit of that in the asian culture i think it has improved tremendously but i think overall as a holistic um that is a little bit of a negative characteristic that um asian people have yeah see how that can be tough but i see what you mean by like people just waiting to bucket you or just waiting to see how to categorize you like upon meeting you it can be quite quite like stressful yeah, I think it's, you know, what I would say is, it's not so stressful. It's sometimes also in an interesting way. I'm okay when they put me in a bucket because I belong there. And I mean that not as in like a negative connotation. But yeah, I'm from America. I grew up in America. Yet I can speak to you in Korean. I want you to take that in. I want you to be able to take somebody who went somewhere in a different country and carried on your traditions um, to understand that it's not just the language thing, right? I also want you to understand that I have different goals and ideals and I look look like you and I don't have to conform to a certain thing. So I think to me, the fact that I don't fit into a bucket is something that I'm very proud of. And I will challenge people when they put me in a bucket because, hey, your perception, I am willing to challenge what it is. And I'm willing to show you that there's a pros and cons to both things and there's not one way of thinking. So um in a way, I actually have gone to embrace kind of that negative stereotype because negative or positive, I'm willing to have a conversation and at least make that person think next time if that stereotype, in fact, is real. To me, all those micro moments add up to us changing the culture, and um, I'm just glad to be a part of it. 
That's a good way to look at it, like a good framework to approach it. Because I know, for one, I hate being bucketed. I kind of like, you know, get frustrated when I can feel somebody like you know stereotyping me or making assumptions. It, what I'll say is that um, me being Korean has a set of stereotypes that are way more positive than you being black and that have stereotypes, right? So I, I'm able to, and I have to fully um, recognize this as my privilege. And it's something that I don't take lightly is that a lot of stereotypes for me personally, um, as an Asian male who seems safe to a lot of people, and I don't mean safe in a um, desexualized way or any kind of way, but you look at me and feel like, I'm not going to cause trouble. And and a lot of people feel safeness to that. So I get a lot of positive stereotypes, whether it's in the workplace or networking events or anything like that, right? So, um, and unfortunately, the world doesn't see um, the majority of black people that way. So, you know, I fully recognize that this is a privilege that I have and not just like, oh, look at me, I'm able to handle this very well. I'm able to have a higher awareness because I know um, the positive perception that I have, and I try to make the best of it. So um, I did want to add that um, caveat. No, that's definitely a good point to bring up and a good caveat to mention. Because I think with any stereotype, good or bad, it's like even like the good stereotypes about Asian like plays into the model minority myth or even just, you know, 100%. any quote-unquote positive stereotypes about black men still are just like nefarious in nature. Yeah, totally. So sort of going off of that, I know you mentioned sort of pop culture in Korea emerging a little bit, and you know, you're someone into pop culture and social media, and I feel like lately there's been a trend of Korean media becoming more and more popular and emerging, mm -hmm. so it's like, is that a sense of pride for you? Is it something that you feel represented, especially as it gets more popular here in the U.S.? Yeah, I'm absolutely incredibly proud of what you, what um, is called like the Hallyu wave, which is just like the Korean wave. Right. Um, if you would have told me that Blackpink would have had its own Netflix special and millions of people tuned to watch and understand what K-pop is, I would have I, I, I would have thought you were lying. Right. Um, if you would have told me all those Netflix dramas um, are starting to get there, if you would have told me our entertainment culture got so much funding from Netflix and we were able to dominate um, Asia and, you know, start to make marks in America and what that is. I'm extremely proud of it. And I feel like as, um, you know, a lot of conversations, I think, in the API community here is representation within the American industry. I feel like what the Korean industry is doing for representation by showing the um, the spending power of the Asian culture and what the Asian entertainment is willing to bring for its customers is going to be something that's recognizable and is going to absolutely impact um, Asian American representation um, in the world. I would even argue to a degree that Blackpink is more uh, famous than Ariana Grande. And that's a statement in itself. And the fact that we have um, four Asian women um, who grew up in Australia, New Zealand, um, Thailand, and in Korea come together as a group that um, speaks multiple languages and is dominating the world and introducing the Korean culture, I, I couldn't be more prouder. And um, I mean that from the bottom of my heart because those are realities that um koreans didn't know was a possibility it, it just wasn't a possibility the fact that i'm seeing gen zers doing tiktoks with their parents is not something that would have happened when even i was growing up um the fact that entertainment is becoming a um and not even entertainment art is an option for kids growing up as a profession that is respected by parents 
I couldn't be prouder of what the Korean um, entertainment industry has done as a whole, and I fully support it. And um, yeah, I'm extremely proud to say I watch Korean dramas, Korean movies, listen to Korean music, and immersed in it because um, I couldn't be prouder of our country and the Asian culture and, what, and the seeds that we're planting that will impact um, when I have children and when they are growing up. You know, it's so dope. I can like, hear your excitement. Like, it's so dope to just hear that. And I know I can value that, like, representation. I know, like, what it's done for me. And I know like, sometimes I've seen, like, either even just Black people or even just specifically Jamaican representation on screen has made me so happy. So I feel that pride and joy. And on top of that, it's so dope what, like, media and entertainment can do as an arbiter of culture in general. From running this podcast, I know a few people have mentioned, like, learning English or, like, knowing about American stereotypes just because, like, movies and different TV shows yeah um it's and and here there's a lot of very talented artists um and um uh, screenwriters and um activists all in america too that are doing the groundwork and are fighting hard for it too so i'm not discounting um i guess asian american content in america um but what i truly feel like is the machine that korea has provided entertainment um, and is taking over asia is now slowly starting to get recognition in america and i feel like that is just going to catapult um asian american content and culture and representation even further so i i don't feel like it's you can only do it here in the united states or it has it's everything so um i definitely do want to give props because i remember what it was like with korean entertainment when i was growing up and where it is now and now that i'm in the business and understand the um just the economics of everything a little bit more that i obviously didn't know as a kid it it's um it's very very um a proud moment because it the amount of work and infrastructure and talent that was developed to be able to get there it, it, it was a lot of sacrifice and we got it done. So um, long ways to go, but I'm very proud of where we are right now. And I actually want to like, dive into that more if you know the history, because it's really cool how Korea kind of built this industry up very recently. So I guess, where was entertainment at when you were a kid and like, how has it grown? I know they have like development camps, I've heard mm-hmm. for these K-pop yeah. idols. So it seems like they just really found a formula and like, let's scale it. It was almost like a tech company. Yeah, um, I think tech company is a very interesting thing because when it first when first Korean entertainment came out, right, it was usually it was for kind of like the Korean people, right. And one of the biggest um, Asian artists um, at the time was Boa, and she was from SN. And that company basically, um, you know, um, Isuman, who is the um, founder and CEO, he was an artist himself, but he was taking this a uh, very young girl. I think she might have been twelve at the time, or something like that, right? He saw that she could be a star. And, you know, um, he went to Japan first time um, with her to go there because there wasn't a market for young talent like that in Korea. So he actually had to go somewhere else just from the pure economics of it because there wasn't there. And then she became a big star. Um, and then she also went to the United States very early as well, right? Um, to go, but that didn't go that well because she didn't assimilate, assimilate with the culture like her herself. So she didn't feel as comfortable. So she came back, but that was one. And then SM became a huge thing. And then they um, had a girl's generation, Sonia Shita. And, um, you know, that um, they were one of the first groups to um, talk in late night um, TV. I think it was um, Jimmy Fallon when they were on too, right? And then before, and if we go to like the JYP, um, you know, um, the founder was basically um, 
a successful artist in Korea, but he wanted to make it as a producer. So he went to America and then won some Grammys as a producer producing the music. He also then um, created Wonder Girls and Wonder Girls opened up for, um, oh, um, who was it? Justin Bieber, you know, and things like that. So, and then YG family has done a lot. Um, and I don't want to just get this into a K-pop um, thing because I'm not certainly the expert, but what I do know is like when I was growing up, right? The music that um, I was listening was very, it, was, it had a very distinct Korean style. And it, but it was only really meant for Koreans or you never thought about it as international music. And then you started hearing English integrated into the music. Then you started hearing English only songs in the albums, right? And you started um, seeing that and people started gravitating towards it. All the idols and stuff like that, well, they, they go through training a long time and they're, um, they learn dance and have all that and they come out and just do performance really, really well. And now it's just taking that in spades and there's so many groups. But yeah, I mean, um, the whole idea was they, they wanted to cr craft a image and craft um, a vision for somebody's brand. And they were going to invest in that heavily. And these artists that um, did that has just opened the path for so many more opportunities in the space. So yeah, and I think like, you know, I want to give a shout out to like the 1 million YouTube channel of dancers because that is something that someone that has skyrocketed the dance um, kind of culture in Korea. And, you know, relatively speaking, I think, um, started TikTok a little bit before TikTok to a degree of just showing all these things and how people are get into it and the connection of it. So, yeah, I feel like the Hallyu culture um, has impacted pop culture a lot. And as a marketer, I continue to always be um, pleasantly surprised when the trends that I've seen happen in Korea come to America. And I already knew it was going to be a big thing because of the things that are happening. So um, I study Korean um, art and entertainment a lot because I know it's going to come to the United States. And that just makes me a better marketer when it does. That's smart. It's a good tip. It seems like the Koreans are the trendsetters. To a degree, what I would say is Koreans are early adopters. So okay. when when a trend happens, right, Koreans kind of go all in as a, as together, um, and it's kind of like full in. So you get to learn really quickly what that has legs and how it's innovative. Um, the United States is not like that, right? When a trend happens, maybe a few people get along, but then when it's popular, then everybody gets along, right? It's not like that in Korea. Yeah. So um, the, the up and downs of trends and how it is happens higher in Korea, which makes it a whole separate marketing challenge. But yeah, that's um, uh, I learned a lot from the Korean culture. So not only am I a consumer of it, but it's really helped me as a marketer as well. No, I feel like that's one thing I want to expand more as a marketer, really understanding like the global landscape and how different countries interact with trends and how different countries interact with social media. And like, I know in some countries, Facebook Live is like everything, but here in the U.S., like no one really cares. Right, 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 right. Yeah, um, Korean, they have a um, an app, um, a different app, V V Live, that a lot of um, idols um, go on live streaming and they're they do it in their cars when they're traveling and things like that um the um koreans call social media sns social networking services and they bucket all that with like instagram facebook and um, things like that youtube has a whole separate culture to um koreans actually like to take it a, a couple steps back koreans developed um a website called SciWorld. And it was basically MySpace before MySpace. Um, it was it was very big, and it was like literally the adoption was just like everybody in Korea had a a Cyworld page, and um, 
it was their profile, right? One of the things that company failed to recognize that Facebook did, and the difference why SciWorld um, is not the app that you open every day instead of like Facebook and Instagram, was that SciWorld never developed a feed. They only kind of developed their own um, profiles, right? And when Facebook developed the feed and kind of when MySpace went, a, went away, um, SciWorld folded basically. But SciWorld was the first main social media platform that was widely adopted. So the other, other thing that I would tell you is that like I take tremendous pride in Korean history of the first things that we did because we're a country about the size of Indiana, yet we had the first in as innovations as a country in so many different sectors and um, even in history. So we developed the first printing press before Gutenberg as well. Um, and so I, I take a lot of pride in those um, type of um, things because it's a small country, it's incredibly talented people um, that um, I have tremendous amount of pride of saying that I'm a Korean American. So um, yeah, that's a little bit of that context. No, I'm glad that you take pride in it because I'm learning so much and I'm sure like the viewers are because that's pretty dope. I don't know any of those things about like the first MySpace to printing press either. But just probing off of that a little more, the English being adopted into the K-pop songs, but just English as a language, is it widely known in Korea? Is it might like, you know, a middle upper class thing to know both languages or is it like widely adopted? Yeah, so I'll give you a, a little bit more context into the Korean culture. So when you're a, a kid going to school, right? In America, you would think like, you know, you wake up at seven, eat breakfast, and then you end school at 2.30 and something like that, right? Um, and then you play until dinner time. In Korea, probably as young as like elementary school, let alone like maybe um, kindergarten, after your schooling period, you go to like academies to learn more. So like imagine you get out of school at 2.30, right? Um, the first thing you go is a math academy to learn more math. And you're in second grade, but the math academy is teaching you fifth grade um, math. And then after that, you go to gymnastics practice or something where is activity focus and there and then after that you have dinner and then after that you have english lessons because you need to learn a different language next year not only do you have english lessons but now they're introducing you chinese right and you're in the second grade that's the culture in korea where education is not only something that um people value but they put you into these academies to learn more because of how competitive it is to get into the top universities and how much they value um education so the even as a kid you are forced to study quite a bit um and they don't recognize it any other way like i i think part of the thing that and i'm not i've never really talked to my dad about this but you as a kid don't really have a childhood to a degree like you could have a childhood but culturally it's really um, seemingly irresponsible for the parents and the kid to kind of just be a kid so i think to a degree he wanted me to enjoy kid before being an adult um which is you know what i'll say about this i, I started off this podcast talking about a lot of traumatic events my, my dad has happened but there's a lot of sacrifices that he made in a very subtle way to try to give me a better life and childhood which is i think this um thing about asian parents and that they can't directly tell you what they're doing but you later on feel it and you have to kind of like learn that um and i think it's changing through generations and i think a lot of different cultures can actually respect that as a immigrant family but as much as crap as i kind of gave my dad in a hard way i've also grown to really respect um what he sacrificed to try to get me a better life i just didn't recognize it as a kid nor should i have recognized it as a kid but you know um as an adult i respect it a lot more because um these decisions were not easy but yeah so korean culture 
studying, 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 um, going, going to different academies to learn more. Um, parents um, having that pressure to always have a kid in the top X percentage of your class. They don't want to be the dumb kid. Um, the big corporations and jobs requiring or rejecting people that graduated out of the top university in Korea because they're not qualified enough because they don't have any extracurriculars or um, the United States experience and things like that, right? That is very real. Um, in fact, um, if you guys want to check out a drama, it's called Sky Castle. It shows you how competitive and crazy um, Korean education system is, but it's a very fair, um, very accurate representation of what that culture is like. So um, yeah, man, it's uh, the childhood is that crazy and that's why english is so prevalent in the culture because they value that as um as something that other people don't have and there's like one of the things that uh, sometimes um happens when i go is like they want to try to have a conversation with me in english um and actually koreans pay other koreans to like have like 30 minute sessions with somebody who, and they just talk in english only over the phone like the obsession was understanding English and understanding America and pop culture is, is real. So um, English is super valued and it's starting from the education and kind of the, um, I guess, like the value that they put on people that are truly bilingual. Well, thank you for that context. You're really dropping gems, but that makes sense. I feel I've had a few people from Asia on this podcast and from what I've heard about the education system in Korea and in China, it's just... It makes sense with the work ethic that you see of people like who've immigrated here. Totally. So shifting more broadly, like thinking about the United States and Korea, like what are some of the high like high level ways the culture to differ? Like I'm assuming when you've gone back and forth, there's a little like culture shock and reverse culture shock when you go. I'm not sure like how long you spend each time you go, but is there anything that you have to remind yourself like, oh yeah, I'm I'm back here? Yeah, it's an interesting question because um, what. I think I notice are like the small, it's actually different. When I was younger, I think I had more of a difficult time on why people were staring at me um, because I, I looked different. I sounded different. I just had a different swag. It was very obvious and I'm not sure why it was obvious or what exactly was obvious, but it, it, I, I didn't look like I came from Korea. Um, the other thing about Koreans is that like, usually a lot of people look the same. A lot of people follow the same trends. So it's, it's a, it, like uniqueness until recently hasn't been like super common. So I think I sucked out and I remember recognizing that and that part. I also recognized that people saw me differently and wanted to talk to me differently because they knew I was in America and they were like, wow, that's so cool. I aspire uh, I wish I could go study abroad and things like that, right? The different societal values that Korea put in for things that seemingly weren't any different in America. So I recognize a lot of that. When I got older, I recognized a lot more economy-related things. Like, for example, oh, this restaurant has a lot of staff. Why is that? Because in America, there was no way they can afford this at the uh, prices that they're selling food. Well, the minimum wage is so much cheaper in Korea than um, America. And that's why they're able to have so, so much staff doing these things and um, things like that. So um, I recognize these type of things. I've started to recognize how Korean business work and what their culture is. Like, for example, in Korea, um, you can't really fire someone if you get hired into a company, they have to resign. So what happens is that um, if you have a really bad manager who doesn't like you, that manager sort of makes your life miserable until you quit. 
So it's a very interesting, different cultural thing of how work works and what it means. And like um, the one other common thing, and I feel like you have heard this and your listeners have heard this a lot, which is like Korean, if you're older, you're automatically more or the highest respected person in the room, right? It's not even like a class thing. It's an old um, age thing and you respect your elders. So there's that type of culture too. So I, I guess for me, and, and I don't mean to say this in a flippant way or a cocky way, but my dad was able to teach me the nuances at a very young age and make sure that I didn't have a judgment towards if it was good or bad. It was me respecting the culture. So um, what, when people ask me these questions, I, I, it's weird because I can tell you what I've noticed, but realistically, I don't notice it because it's culture. And it's something that I know I have to assimilate and respect and it's in its own context. There's no good or, good or bad. It's that culture. Um, obviously, like, you know, you translate that over to the systemic um, oppression that black people had in America and kind of the model minority and what that has caused. Like, that's a little bit different. But what I'm saying is when you notice those type of nuances and culture, I, I'm more hyper aware of it. There seems to be a lot of value put on foreign experiences or experiences in the United States. So is mm-hmm. it specifically just having those experiences outside of Korea or just specifically having those experiences in, in the United States? Well, if you think about Korea as a country, right, um, we had a we had a war in 1950, right? Um, mm-hmm. When the communism and everything uh, was happening, and then also uh, when Japan, um, you know, um, conquered Korea um, during World War Two, right? The country that saved us from everything and protected us was the United States, right? So by the America um, protected Korea and spent resources to make sure that there wasn't a war um, happening between North and South that escalated, right? Um, So, you know, from a Korean culture, America really did impact how Koreans were able to grow. Not only that, if you look at our economy, our big companies like Samsung and Hyundai and things like that, it's predominantly consumed, well, it's not predominantly, but a huge percentage of people are consuming it are you know, United, in, in the United States, if you include the UK and a lot of English speaking countries, English becomes a very predominant language for um, uh, big Korean companies to deal. And that's how our economy is run, right? So English is, has grown to be a bigger percentage of our lexicon and just kind of like how our economy operates. And where you doubled that with is just entertainment as a whole, right? If you look at a lot of the K-pop, um, and, you know, this is a separate topic that I've always kind of um, haven't had a chance to talk about. I'm not sure this is the right form, but if you really think about it, um, Koreans are shamelessly um, taking um, black culture and the hip hop culture and rebranding it as um, Korean K-pop to a degree. And I don't mean this in a way where we're just t- copy, um, copycatting it and there's no innovation and art behind it. But altogether, if you look at a lot of the elements of what makes a K-pop idol and the group successful, there's a lot of hip-hop dance elements. There's a lot of trap. There's a lot of beats. There's a lot of, you know, standing out and having uniqueness in just your swag, right? That is a straight up, like, hip-hop culture that's... Um, made into, if you want to take take it there, a, a model minority for the rest of the world to be able to accept, right? So, you know, uh, in- English is a huge part of it um, and the need for it and likeness to it and wanting to assimilate in that culture. Yeah, um, Koreans have a huge longing for it. 
That makes sense. That's some good context. And also a good point you raised about, like, K-pop and hip-hop. Because that's also some differences I notice. Something, I mean, a similarity that I notice. Because I don't listen to K-pop too frequently. But some songs that I have listened to are some songs that have made the popular consciousness. I'm like, oh, this sounds good. This sounds familiar. It sounds like, you know, something I'd regularly listen to. So Yeah, man. K-pop, really K-pop beats are dope. Like, there are some awesome yeah. producers in the space. And if you if you look at it, too, it's like if you just take the instrumental and just put, like, a trap artist on it or um, some mumble rap or all that kind of stuff and or just, like, a really good pop song, put some auto-tune in it. Like, I'm telling you, man, like, you wouldn't recognize the difference. And it's, it's – oh, if you really study, you recognize the difference, but it has the same roots. So I think it's very important for me as a um, Korean American to recognize that because other, like what I'm starting to get more hyper aware of is the privilege that I have um, being a Korean American. Um, and, uh, and when I see those moments where we're, you know, blatantly is not the right word, but have in fact t- took a root of it and never really gave recognition to the founding fathers, right? Um, I feel like I have to mention it. Um, otherwise, I'd be very disingenuous of um, claiming something that technically wasn't ours, ours to claim from the beginning. You know, th- thank you for doing that. I mean, honestly, I think like it's it's almost time for like Drake or somebody to have a K-pop artist or somebody, and I think it'll just pop. There'll be a lot more features. Yeah, man, Selena Gomez and Blackpink did a thing. You know what I mean? And Blackpink was on Coachella, and you know what I mean? And um so we're getting there uh big bang which is an idol group that i grew up absolutely loving um g dragon is probably my favorite inspirational artist in fact if there was video you see me wearing glasses that g dragon wore um it's just not sunglasses i'm not crazy enough to have sunglasses on the podcast interview but just regular glasses right um but yeah man they were supposed to be on um coachella too this year um before the pan or last year before um kind of corona hit so you know we're um we're making the move we, we got some dope collabs and um yeah it's uh it's very interesting and hopefully it gets there man um i think um more asian representation in this way is always a great thing and you know i think there has been a lot of conversation within the black and asian communities and a lot of leadership building within those that um if you know sam hyun from tiktok um he, yeah man he, he speaks a lot to it so you know, I, I've, um, and giving shout out to my girl, Michelle and her brand, we are uprisers who is, um, telling a lot of those stories from Asian American inclusive stories. Like we got a lot of people doing interesting stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to see more collabs like that. Yeah. I think it's, it's only time will tell. I think the, I think the world and music is only going to get more global. hundred percent. So going off of that, if you had an advice, if, if you had any advice to offer a young immigrant that was in your shoes, you know, either from Korea or just honestly from any country, what would you tell them? What would be the advice you give them? Don't overreact to some people looking at you differently. Um, understand. Um, and I would give the same advice that my dad gave me as a child. Your job is not to understand the culture or deconstruct the culture or have an opinion about the culture in a negative or positive way your job is to respect the culture and if you respect the culture um you would hope that they would respect your culture back it doesn't always happen that way but that's the mindset you need to have um i would um also want to say that um any kind of hardships that you may or may not have received from your own kind um i've been there um but you know you have to also respect why that might have happened um, it doesn't make you any less of a person. Um, and, you know, um, 
know that there are other people that have walked in your shoes and that you can always talk to. Um, it's not as lonely as you think. Um, and we are all here to help. So yeah, I mean, that's a long way of saying, I think like, um, don't be afraid. Um, don't overreact to um, the first time somebody says something racist at you. Um, hear it, learn from it, grow from it, and try to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well said. With that, like we're coming up on the end of the interview, so I'm gonna ask you a, a I'm gonna ask you a question that I ask every guest: Is your migration journey over? Do you see yourself living in South Korea again, or for good? Is the United States your home forever? Do you see yourself even living in a third country, a different country, for some time? Yeah, um, it's definitely not over. Um, you know, um, I uh, I tell people if I actually didn't um, have my dog, um, I, there is a good chance I probably could have been working remotely in different Asian countries and traveling the world and becoming a digital marketer that way. Um, I also see myself potentially living back in Korea um, because, you know, I know what my dad did for me as a kid, right? He sacrificed um, his business and his time to give me a different perspective and make sure I have a whole world view. And not only that, I have a view of understanding what my culture is, right? Um, if I have a, a, if I get married, if I have a child, if I have a loving wife who sees the same way and we feel like that's the best um, for our kids, I would love to, um, actually not even love to, I would absolutely sacrifice everything that I have in my life to be able to give some uh, someone that um, did that because my dad did the same thing and I know the type of person that it made me. So whether it's going back to Korea, whether it's back um, uh, maybe, you know, going to Australia for a year to uh, teach um, entrepreneurism and marketing um, in to students at Bond University or w whatever it may be. Uh, it might be me going to Europe and um, uh, being able to run a business there I love the world. In, in fact, um, I would love to try to go where I can make the biggest difference. Um, and yeah, so this only started. And the, even within America, the only time zone I haven't lived in is in the mountain time zone. I've I've lived in Texas. I lived in North Carolina. I lived in New York City. I lived in Western New York. I lived in Miami. Um, you know, I, I lived everywhere. Um, and yeah, the location um, shouldn't define who you are, right? And there's such a bigger country out there. There's so many different perspectives. And every place I learned, I learned something so much that I wouldn't have learned on, until I was there. So, yeah, um, I'm absolutely open to new places. In fact, I would encourage everybody who's listening um, to be able to take that chance because um, I think that has made me into a better person. I think that's the value of travel and migration, just new experiences, new people, even within the United States. Because I think because the U.S. is so big, like in Europe, it'd be other countries. And honestly, it's very different, like the South, New York, New England. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. It was so amazing learning from you and learning about Korean culture and history. But do you have anything that you want to plug or promote or any questions for me? Yeah, um, Aiden, I, I want to say I really um, appreciate you um, inviting me because I feel like there's not a lot of opportunities for me to talk about not only kind of even my struggles within the Asian American communities and the Korean communities, but also be able to give context into the culture and um, highlight some of the really important people in it. So um, thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. And then if um, anybody wants to chat with me further, um, hit me up on Instagram. It's Shecky, S-H-E-C-K-I-I. -I. And then I also have a podcast, Welcome to Sheckyville, um, which is talking predominantly about businesses and entrepreneurships. But honestly, um, 
I'm I'm glad I met you on Clubhouse. Um, I'm I'm glad we got to connect, and it's a really uh, big honor for me to be on here. So thank you for your time. Yeah, of course. I'm glad we got to connect too, and I'm glad I'm glad I got to learn from you. I'm glad the listeners got to learn from you. And if you guys are list- interested in business podcasts, and definitely check it out. Appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one, Tony. You too. That was great. And I feel like I've learned so much from Tony about entertainment and media in Korea and the United States. And honestly, as a pop culture junkie myself, it was very, very interesting to get that lens on things. I definitely want to check out that Korean drama that he mentioned, Sky Castle. I think it was right up my alley. It sounds very entertaining. It seems like there's a lot of backstabbing, a lot of drama, a lot of, you know, a lot of the reality TV soapy antics that I love. So I advise you guys to look into it. And if you guys have any recommendations for me, definitely hit me up in the DMs on social media, wherever. Also, if you've made it to the end of the episode and you're in need of a Clubhouse invite and you want to get in on the fun, you're in luck. Because if you DM our Instagram page, Clubhouse PPF, I'll send you one. Fair warning, though, that you need to give me your phone number and that you will need to have an iPhone because it's only available on iOS at the moment. But, you know, first come, first serve. So have at it if you're really interested. But as always, please rate and subscribe on the App Store or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That way you can get the episodes pushed right to you when we have a new release. I think Spotify is working on a follow feature for podcasts so you can now get notifications on Spotify. It's coming slowly with updates, but that's a fun one. So if you listen on Spotify, remember to hit that button. Also, follow us on Instagram or Twitter at PushPullFactor. Check out our website at PushPullFactor.com. And also, you can catch me on Clubhouse at Aiden D. Nice, A-I-D-A-N-D-N-I-C-E. Because you just might catch some side content there. You might catch me lurking in a room. Who knows? And as always, have a good one.